Malachi chapter number one. And uh, this last book of the Old Testament, uh, Malachi is, is dealing with some issues. And so we're going to look at, uh, at one of these. There are kind of two different angles of the same uh, issue this morning. Malachi chapter one and verse number six. In the first few verses, he introduces the book and uh, that he's writing it and that God loves his people. Uh, and then in verse six, he says this, a son honoreth his father. And a servant his master. If I then be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that, ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been your means uh, <clears throat> hath been your means with will he regard your persons saith the Lord of hosts who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught I have no pleasure in you saith the Lord of hosts neither will I, will I accept an offering at your hand for from the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, my name shall be greatly, uh, shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered into my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it, and that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it. And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hands, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificed unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts. And my name is dreadful among the heathen. And I want to speak this morning on this thought, despising the name of God. And let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, our opportunity to be here this morning. Thank you for your word and its power. I pray that you'd speak to our hearts. I pray that you'd give us a reviving in these last days. Lord, it start, may it start with us, each one individually. May we examine ourselves. May we allow you, Holy Spirit, to have free access and reign in our hearts and lives to, uh, Lord, guide us and direct us to a closer walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> if you look here this morning, none of the people that are being addressed would say, we despise the name of God. In fact, they are still offering sacrifices. They are still going through the motions of the Mosaic law. They're still uh, bringing their offerings before the Lord. They're still enacting their their methods of worship that God established through Moses back with the tabernacle and now uh, in the temple. Uh, and so the, the real point here this morning is not 
would any of us here say we hate God? I doubt if anybody in here would or we wouldn't be here in most cases. Uh, and so uh, the, the point is, is that they are going through the motions, but what they're doing is not pleasing to the Lord. And in practice, not with their words are they despising God, but in the practice of what they're doing, they are so, they are so polluting it that it is offensive to God. And they're say, God is saying, you, you don't value me. If you valued me, you wouldn't bring this kind of an offering. And we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. When we look at the book of Malachi here at the end, what the people do not understand is that God is about to go silent for 400 years. There's about to be a period of time where God is not going to speak until John the Baptist comes on the scene. There's going to be silence. And there's going to be... Uh, and in a, in a manner of speaking, a time of great darkness uh, upon the earth as God uh, just basically allows sin to run its course. That's what we've wanted. That's what the, the people have decided that they're going to go about. And God decides, okay, uh, I'm going to step back for a time and I'm going to let this take place. At the instance of Malachi's writing, they are, they're coming out of a period of judgment. They are... Uh, they have been separated and they've been dispersed. They've been driven from their homeland for 70 years. Uh, Malachi is writing and is a contemporary with Nehemiah. So there's, there's a time of revival that's going on. There's a rebuilding of the temple. There's a rebuilding of the city walls of Jerusalem. There's a regathering of the people. But yet still, there are some things as they come back that they've not woken up to yet. That they've not understood yet. Uh, and so uh, they, they come and they apparently mean well because they're making sacrifices. I mean, if we were to look at ourselves this morning, I would say we all, we all came. Uh, we all participate in the service. Uh, we all interact with one another. Most everyone, generally speaking, is pleasant and cordial to one another and enjoys one another's company. Uh, and so we, we're all going through the motions of worshiping God, of serving God, uh, and of trying to please God, but is he pleased? And so when we kind of look and consider what's going on here is the context, and within the context in chapter 1, Malachi is addressing the nation. Now he's addressing the nation through their spiritual leaders as he calls into question here the practices of the priest. But in chapter 2, he's going to shift that to the individual. Uh, and so there's this a progression throughout the book and we'll look at a few verses in chapter 2 to make some of that, to see some of that transfer to us individually so that we can make application to our lives this morning. Uh, but we need to understand what he's, he's addressing a nation here. This is a national problem. This isn't a problem within a, a, an individual per se, uh, though it is a problem with many individuals. This isn't a problem that's just isolated to uh, one geographic region of the country or one tribe of Israel or one, uh, one area of worship or in our case, one church. This is a national problem uh, and he is addressing the problem and he's saying the problem is as that we, not with words, but by our spirit and our deeds, despise the name of the Lord. We are not fully and we are not truly exalting the name of Christ 
with our spirit, with our attitude, with our worship, with our sacrifice. And we'll see some examples of that as we make our way through the message this morning. Uh, and so as he is preaching here and writing, we see that they, the people have a false sense of security in their privileged relationship with God. Israel has a very privileged relationship with God. And we as Christians, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, I think that it's a fair assessment for me to say that you and I in that relationship with him have a special relationship with him. I have a special relationship with my wife that she doesn't have with anyone else that I don't have with anyone else. We, uh, we, I tell her things I wouldn't tell another soul. She tells me things she wouldn't tell another soul. Uh, there are, uh, there are things that we, <clears throat> that we, uh, memories that we share and places that we've been. And, uh, over the last 33 plus years that, uh, that, that are unique to us or specific to us. It makes it a special relationship, a privileged relationship. And if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if he is your Lord and your Savior, then you have a privilege and a special relationship with him. And by the way, it's unique to you. There are a lot of similarities. There are a lot of similarities between our marriages and other marriages, but our relationship is unique to us. And every Christian has some similarities in his relationship with Christ, but that relationship is unique to the individual and the individual experience. And they have a false sense of security within their special relationship with God. They are, they are taking some things for granted. They are making some assumptions that just are not so. So sinful has the nation become that God's words to the people are no longer having an impact. That the preachers can preach, the prophets can prophesy, but the people are, are continuing on as if they've heard nothing. And I'm not talking about the lost person out in the world that doesn't know Christ. I'm talking about those of us that populate the church houses. We come and we hear the word of God proclaimed and we read the word of God, but it has no impact on us. It's not it's not touching our hearts. It's not stirring our souls. It's not driving us to our knees. It's not motivating us to serve like it once did. There was a time in America whenever, uh, whenever revival could sweep across the large portions of the land because uh, the word of God was opened and preached and the church began to live it. And as it did, it brought the Holy Spirit's convicting power and people responded uh, to that convicting power. They didn't rebuff it and, uh, and excuse it and abhor it. The problem here in Malachi is that the people uh, are abhorring the word of God, but they don't understand it. That's what they're doing. They really believe that what they're doing is the right thing. And so God preparing is giving an opportunity for restoration for revival before a period of silence. Malachi comes and he confronts the priest. And he confronts the priest and he begins to call out, how they're going about uh, the worship system of, uh, of the nation. And he starts it with attitude. You know, so often in our churches, what we address is deeds. But deeds, the deeds can all be correct if the attitude and the spirit with which they're done is incorrect. Yeah. If we, we can do all the right things with the wrong spirit and displease God. 
We can do all of the right things. We can dot all the I's. We can cross all the T's and have a miserable countenance and a miserable disposition and a miserable walk with God and displease the Father. And it's high time that we understood that. That we come to the realization that it's not just about, listen, I firmly believe that if the Holy Spirit changes me inwardly, that there's going to be an outward manifestation of that change. I cannot walk with God and stay the same. It's not possible. But I can completely change outwardly and still be just as vile and corrupt inwardly. I can whitewash the tomb. I can plant grass on top of the grave and plant flowers and make it beautiful. I can even take and plant a bouquet on it that, uh, and some bushes on it that smell real pretty. And so I don't notice the smell of the decaying flesh. I notice the smell of the flower and come and say, oh, how wonderful and beautiful this place is and how peaceful and how restful. And then the reality is, is that if that's my walk with God, there is no rest within here. There is, there is death, there is decay, there is destruction. And he makes the point when he comes to them and he says in verse 6, God speaking, a son honoreth his father and a servant his master. So listen, it's just natural that a son, daughter, that a child would honor their father. A, a relationship that's correct between the father and the children and the children and the father is a relationship that just provokes or naturally causes honor to be bestowed. There has to be a breakdown in values or of, uh, of ideals or of the relationship in order for dishonor to come about. When a relationship is right, that's the way that God made us. It's, it's, if I lead my home correctly, my wife will follow my lead naturally because that's where her security is. That's, uh, that's where her comfort zone is. That's the way that God created us to fulfill the roles that he created us to fulfill. And when we do that, we naturally fall into place. And a father who leads properly, who worships and honors God properly, and then a children uh, who value God, who value those principles, that value uh, that truth, will naturally come about to honor. God says, a son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if a master... Where is my fear? See, we are to fear the Lord. It is the beginning of wisdom. We are to fear him in the sense that we reverence him and that we, uh, that we worship him. That we understand his power. That we also understand his love and his benevolence, but we also understand his power. And that if I'm out of line, he has all the power necessary to bring judgment upon me to bring me back in line. Or to, uh, to, to correctly uh, pronounce sentence upon and adjudicate, carry out that sentence in my, on my soul. And he's within the, his holiness and righteousness to do so. And so as a son here with his father, it's no wonder that the book of Malachi closes by saying that he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Why? Because he's our father. And we come and we understand that a son will honor the father, but God says to them, hey, you're coming and you think you're bestowing honor, but where's my honor? You come and you think you're reverencing me, but where is your fear? 
And God comes and he looks at us and, uh, and, and he makes his point. And so he confronts the priest. The nation is confronted here in chapter 6, or chapter 1 of verses 6 through 14. And then in chapter 2, he turns that and he confronts the people. And so I'm going to read just a few verses here in chapter 2. So we see the correlation and we make the connection. Because right now, some of us are thinking, oh good, this is, this is broad and national. So I can hide behind something. And we can't hide behind anything. We all need to be confronted with the fact that if our vision of who and what God is and our response to him is not correct, then we put ourselves in a precarious position. We strip ourselves of his power. We invite his judgment rather than his blessing. And I don't know about you, but I kind of like having God's favor and blessing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm grown a little fond of it. I, I enjoy that aspect of things a whole lot better than I do uh, his judgment and, uh, and being without him. Chapter number two, as he begins to confront the people in verse 11, we're not going to read the whole section, just a few of the verses. Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. So now there's marriage. Now we're getting isolated to Judah. We're getting isolated. We're getting to personal relationship. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears and with, weep, with weeping and with crying out insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore or receiveth it with good uh, goodwill at your hand. And so they're coming and they're coming emotionally even to worship and God's not pleased. In verse 17, he says, ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he that delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? Now, God hasn't brought judgment yet, so this must be acceptable, essentially is what he's saying. <clears throat> so we're going to define some terms here this morning so we understand what we're talking about. He says, you despise my name, not with words, but with your acts of worship. It's how you're going about it. So he says despise, and that word means to contemn, it means to scorn, it means to disdain, and it means to have the lowest opinion of, to the point of abhorrence. And so it's, it's progressional. He's not saying here that everyone has the same level of despising of the things of God. He's saying so, for some, uh, you, you would look and say, uh, that, that it, it's just a little contemptible. You, you sneer at it. You hear about uh, something that maybe is a little uh, different than what you think it should be or what you've grown accustomed to. And it's, there's just like a, a little smirk, a little sneer. And, uh, and then there's uh, the idea of the progression of it. it comes to a point where we begin to scorn. Now we sit back and we're, we're mocking. And people would sit on the outside and mock those that 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 worship sincerely the Lord God in holiness and impurity, uh, and because of 
uh, because of the corruptible uh, people that have that have led th those types of ministries or different things that have happened in the past or happened to us in other places or happened to us in years gone by. We use that as a justification for our bitterness or for our anger or for our backing away from God's holiness or for uh, for stepping away from the way that uh, God would have us to do things. And those that have stayed true are now mocked. We mock them. We, we hold them at arm's length. And then it progresses to disdain. Now, I'm not just mocking. Now, it just I almost am like angered and disgusted by the mere mention or presence of such a thing. To the point where we abhor. The abhor means to hate extremely with contempt. To loathe. To detest or abominate. Have I gotten to the point where... I, and I would say this morning that most of us in, in, in this room would not have progressed to the point where the, the, the worship of God is abominable to us. Where we would look and we would say, but it's all progressive. We despise, we neglect, we cast off or reject. That's the terminology that he uses here. In verse 11 of chapter 2, he said that we profane. Uh, and so we have profaned the holiness of the Lord. Profane means to make common. So whenever he says it to the individuals now in chapter 2, that the abomination is committed in Israel and Jerusalem, for Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, is saying they've taken the which is holy before God and they've made it common. They brought it down to a leaven of commonality. They've made it... Uh, they, they've made it, uh, they've weakened it, the purity and the holiness and the righteousness of God. It means to violate the honor of, to dishonor, or to treat as common. So then he gives, back to chapter 1, examples of how we have made, how they made it common. How they tore it down. And we're going to take a look at that this morning. So how am I despising the name of God potentially this morning? I'm going to follow this up next week with, and I wrote some about it in the bulletin article this week about how God loves us and how, uh, and so when we look at this, this is all driven by the fact that God loves us and wants to draw us to him. But if I don't understand that I'm dishonoring him, then I can't accept his love truly and I will rebuff it. So how have they despised, and they asked the question, Malachi comes to them, you've despised the name of God. How have we despised, we're worshiping, we're gathering. We're offering sacrifice. The priests are doing their jobs. They're, they're taking the sacrifice. They're tending to the holy place. They're, they're taking care of the showbread. They're, they're lighting the lampstand. They're offering the altar on the, the offering on the altar of incense. The prayers of God's people symbolically are going up, all that it stood for. All the, of the things are right on the outside. So what's his answer? I would say, number one, this morning, they, they, by despising they, they despised him by undesirable showbread. Look at the bread. Ye offer polluted bread on mine altar, in verse number seven. Now, just to kind of bring us up to speed on what is taking place here. <coughs> in their system of worship at this time, they had the temple. When you walked into the temple, and, and I'm not going to get into all of the outer court, as far as like the, the excess of things that are outside the actual replica of the tabernacle within the temple, because there's the all kinds of courtrooms and things that are added later. But the basic structure, when you walk into the entryway 
is there's the, the big curtain at the tabernacle. There's the altar. So when you come into this holy place, the first thing that you come to is the altar. And that altar is where the sacrifices are made. It is where they're tended to. They had different procedures for offering different types of sacrifices. Sometimes, that in, all, in most cases, they would lay their hands on the head of the animal to symbolize the transfer of my sin to the sin of this animal that's about to be sacrificed for me. When we talk about the highest of the sacrifices, the atonement sacrifices, the head of the household had to actually be the one to slay the animal to offer the sacrifice, and the family had to be present to witness the sacrificing of that animal. And so behind that was the laver where they would ceremonially wash before they would work in the altar or before they would go into the holy place. Behind that was a rectangular structure, was divided in two. The front two-thirds of the room uh, were called the, was called the holy place. And the last part was called the whole, most holy place or the holy of holies. The only thing in the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. It symbolized where God would meet with them and the high priest went into that room one time a year to, offer, to make a sin of it, an atonement sacrifice for himself and then for the nation. The other part, the priest would rotate by lot and work in that other part on a, on a continual basis. And they would go in and on the left side was a lampstand and that lampstand uh, had to be filled with oil. Each of the knops had to be filled with oil. Oftentimes in the Old Testament it's called a candlestick. Uh, but in truth, it was a lampstand. There was no wax. There were no wax candles back in that time historically, and they had the priest command was to go and to fill it with oil uh, so that it would continue to light. The oil, the Holy Spirit, was the light and shine the light of Christ upon the world. On the right hand side was a table of showbread. On the table of showbread uh, there were 12 loaves that were brought in on a weekly basis, and on top of them was a vial of oil, and that symbolized. Uh, that symbolized God's provision and, uh, and, and the, the spirit working. And we'll get into that in a little bit in just a moment. And then at the back of the room was the altar of incense. And that was continually to be burning. And it signified as that there was a veil in between the, that and the holy play, holiest of holies. Uh, the, the, the incense burned and the smoke went over and spilled over the veil. It symbolized the prayers of God's people coming into the presence of God. So that's the backdrop here. And so the priests would come in and they dealt with the showbread. And they were to take this old showbread and they were to eat it. They were to bring in fresh bread and they were to eat in the holy place. They were working the old showbread uh, of, of God's provision. And so he's saying, where have we despise you? You have you in verse seven. He says, ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. You're bringing me polluted bread. What you're supposed to be bringing me is pure. You're not supposed to bring me your leftovers. Yeah. You're not supposed to bring me uh, what, what is getting stale. You're not supposed to keep that fresh for you and bring me your old unused. You're supposed to bring it fresh to me. You're supposed to bring me things that are as pure, as righteous, and as holy as they can be. And anything less than that tells me that you despise me. You can go through the motions all you want. But if you offer me less than your best, the message that I hear is that you despise me. All of us have been in circumstances with people in our lives where they tell us one thing, but the message that we get is com something completely else. Why is that? Because their actions belie their words. 
And essentially, that's what God's saying to us here. Your words and your actions don't match. And so in the holy place, they would bring in these 12 loaves of, uh, of bread. It was also known as the bread of the presence. And they would, uh, they would go through this process to symbolize two things primarily. And this is a little bit oversimplified, but I don't want to get too bogged down here. I want to keep moving. Two primary things that he simplifies in here is number one is that God provides. God provides for his children. Whether I view him as my master or as my father, he is providing for me. God's provision for his people is promised. And God makes good on his promises. And so when I look here, what I'm saying is I'm bringing that which represents the provision of God. And when I bring something that's moldy or that's decayed or that's stale, I'm saying that I view what God is giving me in provision is old and moldy and stale. It's not God's best. And so it's symbolic, but it shows the heart. The second thought here is that God has promised salvation. What is this bread? It is the bread of life. In John chapter 6, it gives the illustration. The illustration there is the manna that was given prior to this in the wilderness, but it was the bread from heaven. It's where Jesus comes uh, in John chapter 6 and verses 32 through 58 and says that I am the bread of life. Come and eat of me. I am life. And we look and we understand that the all of the tabernacle is a picture of Christ and his sacrifice. It's even laid out in, uh, in the form of, in the symbol of a cross. You have the long end when you walk in with the altar and the laver and then the, the, the holy place and the holy of holies. And then you've got the arms out with the showbread uh, with the showbread and the lampstand. And so when you look down from above, it would be laid out in the symbol in the form of a cross. It's all showing us what Jesus would do. The atonement that would be made, the blood that would be shed. The provision that it would bring, the salvation that it would brought, that it would bring about, the guidance and the leadership that it would provide, uh, as the Holy Spirit, and the, as the Shekinah glory of God hovered over that uh, that holy of holies and His presence being ever with them. It's God's promise, salvation, that bread of life. And when I say I'm going to bring you something that is uh, that is unworthy, I'm saying I don't value what you promised me. I wonder this morning how often we come into the doors of the church or we go into our uh, private place of worship at home uh, and, and we come uh, unworthily and we come uh, saying to God by our own action, by our own heart, by our own spirit, by what we bring that God, I have to do this, but I really don't value this. And that's God's point here. Am I, and my question to us this morning, from me as a pastor all the way down uh, to, to the, the youngest person in the room that can actually understand what I'm talking about. Do I, in my spirit, in my actions, in my mind, in my heart, say and communicate to God, not with my words only, but by my actions, I love you and I value you and I value what you've promised and what you've given to me despised by undesirable showbread. 
Secondly, I would say that he answered the question by, he said, you've despised me by an unworthy sacrifice. Notice in verse number eight. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. And so the picture is this, that what they were to bring was to be pure. If you uh, go back to, and we could spend a lot of time going back and looking at multiple uh, places where they're given instruction, but we're going to just look at uh, a, a verse or so in Exodus chapter number 12. They're still in Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. They're about to leave. The plagues have been brought upon Egypt and, uh, and the... <clears throat> The Passover, uh, the initial original Passover is, uh, is taking place as God is contending for his people. Uh, and, and when he comes to them in verse 5, and they're, they're being told, go get a lamb. This is new to them. They've been in bondage now for 430 years. They have been uh, slaves in Egypt for 430 years. They've not heard from God prior to Moses' arrival back on the scene uh, after his exile. And they've, they've heard all the stories passed down. They've had all of this handed down. But the tabernacle's not yet been established at this point. They have the, the example of the sacrifices that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob made. But they have no real law that states for. So God is from the very outset here telling them, when you make a sacrifice, this is what's required. And in chapter 12 of verse 5, he says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. He tells them that they have to keep it for 14 days. And so they are going to take that blood and they're going to strike it on the doorpost and, uh, and death is going to pass by as they prepare to leave, as they commit this act of faith to God. He says, listen, you've despised me by an unworthy sacrifice, a male without spot, without blemish. And ye offer the blind for sacrifice. Is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? What were they doing? They weren't giving their most valuable animal in sacrifice. They were giving their least valuable animal in sacrifice. The one that they wanted to cull from the herd. The one that they did not want to interbreed with the herd. The one that they couldn't get much for at auction at the sale. They, they wanted to keep their best and most valuable. And they wanted to offer and sacrifice that which was of no value. That was of no use. God says, would even your governor accept such a gift? Would even an official amongst you receive such and not take offense at it? Now I understand where they're coming from. They've been in exile for 70 years. They've been scattered. They've been reassembled here. This remnant, the rebuilding of the walls and the temple with Ezra and Nehemiah. They've been under the governors of Babylon. That's the point. Would you take this to this lost Babylonian ruler and offer it in sacrifice. 
No, because he'd probably cut your head off. It would be an insult. But yet you expect me to accept it. And I just wonder this morning. And I'm not throwing out lists of this and lists of that. I just want every one of us, myself included, to take inventory of my own heart, my own walk with God. Is my sacrifice this morning abhorrent to God? Or is it acceptable? Am I giving God my purest worship? My purest sacrifice? Or am I just giving God what's left over that I've got, that I no longer have use for? Am I bringing him moldy bread? Am I bringing him my blind sacrifice, my deaf sacrifice, my lame sacrifice? What am I giving him this morning? By God coming to them and saying, you've despised me by a, with an unworthy sacrifice. Those sacrificial animals had to be spotless, perfect, the best that they had. Why? Because they're representing the sacrifice that Jesus would make. When God sent Jesus to the cross, he gave the very best that eternity could offer. The purest blood, the holiest blood, the most righteous blood. It was the only thing acceptable to the Father. And he was willing to pay the sacrifice. And he expects us to value that sacrifice. And when I bring God a lesser sacrifice, the message that I'm sending him is, I do not truly value that which you have given to me. That sacrifice that you've made for me. The two thoughts about this are the blind, lame, and ill offerings were unworthy sacrifices. That even, and notice this in, in, in point B here. Even the pagan religions offered their best. And in faith, they expected their gods to be pleased with their best. If we give our best, we can expect that God will be pleased. But we're foolish to think that he'll be pleased with any less. Number three this morning, lastly, they were despised with unenthused, by unenthused service. They showed their despising of God by their unenthused service. That's where we really show. Is my service to the Lord enthusiastic this morning? Or is it unenthused? Notice verse number 13. Ye said also, behold, what a weariness is it. And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this at your hand, saith the Lord? Ye offer polluted bread, in verse 7. Ye offer the blind for sacrifice, in verse 8. You said, behold, what a weariness it is. Is it a weariness to come together and worship our God? Is it a weariness to go out and serve him? Is it a weariness to pray, to read our Bibles? What happened? Serving God had become a burden to them. God's law had become a prison 
and not a place of protection and blessing. One of the things that I've learned over 25 years of ministry is this, that if we drift for too long, we begin to resent that which was meant to give us great protection and blessing. If I don't stay close to him, I will begin to feel oppressed by him. It's not that anything has changed in its execution. What's changed is my spirit toward it and my spirit toward him. When my spirit towards God is defiled, the way that I view what he's put in my life by way of instruction, by way of protection, by way of governance, will be resented and not appreciated. God doesn't want us to serve him because we're afraid he's going to knock us in the head. He wants us to serve us because we love him and because we value and appreciate what he's given us in sacrifice. How do we know that they've this unenthused service? Notice what it says here. Ye said also, behold, what a weariness is it. They lost their joy. So if you're sitting here this morning, like I sat through the week preparing this, and you're thinking, oh, I'm good, I haven't despised God, I haven't, I'm all, my sacrifice is good, my, 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 my sacrifice is unspotted, it's, it's, it's not blind, it's not, uh, it's not lame, it doesn't have a blemish. Let me ask you something this morning, Christian. Where's your joy? Do you have joy? Here's the manifestation of their walk with God. Here's the way that they could tell. He says to them, behold what ye said, what a weariness is it? This is weariness to me. I'm weary with serving God. I'm tired of going to church. I'm tired of reading my Bible. I'm tired of serving God. I'm tired of giving my offering. I'm tired of doing this. I'm tired of doing for others. I'm tired of... On and on we could go. Is it a weariness to me? Now listen, you've got to come apart at times. I'm not saying that there aren't times when we genuinely get tired, but there's a difference between me getting to the point where I say, you know what, I need a break. I've got to come out. I've got to come apart a little bit here. I've got to take a week off or a couple weeks off and I've got to rest to where I just loathe going to serve God. He tells them, you've lost your joy. Notice what he says next. And you have snuffed at it. What have they lost now? They lost their reverence. Look back to verse 6. A son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Ye have snuffed at it. Where's the honor? Where's the fear? They have lost their reverence. Have I lost my reverence for the things of God? And when I say reverence, I'm not talking about walking around in some kind of pious stance or some 
holier than our attitude. I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, we walked into the auditorium. Uh, don't call it an auditorium. It's the sanctuary. And we've got to reterm everything in all of these like uh, uppity type of terms. And when you walk in, you can't talk. You got to whisper and you got to this, that. No, rejoice and worship and praise God and clap and say amen and lift a hand and praise and, uh, and, and uh, say hallelujah and glory to God. That's what they did. Somehow we think of reverence as just dull and boring and lifeless. It was anything but. But it was reverent. It honored God. It showed God. It elevated God. It revealed God. It made God, uh, it made the lost world around us stop and take notice of what God was doing. Ye have snuffed at it. Their reverence was gone. And notice then what he says next. Behold, what a weariness is it. Ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts, and ye brought that which was torn. They lost focus. Have you lost focus this morning? What do you mean, pastor? They lost focus. They didn't even understand that what they were bringing was unacceptable. In some cases, and, and remember, go back to early in the message this morning. We wrap this up. There's a kind of that scale, the way that the word is, is defined. There's those that sin in ignorance and there are those that are sinning intentionally. And this is no different. And it's manifestation. There, are, there would be those of us this morning, if we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with God, there would be some of us this morning that would say, I thought I was bringing a pure, unspotted, undefiled sacrifice, but the Holy Spirit of God revealed to me a, defi- a deformity that I didn't see. My wife's got this little chihuahua that she's had for probably 15 years or so. And you can look at him and tell. I mean, he still looks, he's, he's not like us. He looks fit. I mean, he looks like he's in pretty good shape. He doesn't have a lot of energy. He just likes to lay in his bed. It's really not too much trouble except for having to force him to go in and out of the house at, at a regular interval so we don't have a mess to clean up. Uh, but if you just looked at him whenever he is like feeling a burst of energy, you'd think that he's just this perfect, happy little, uh, little toothless chihuahua. You, you know that he's not right mentally because he never barks. I've never seen a chihuahua that doesn't bark and is not aggressive. Uh, he is the antithesis of what the personality of a chihuahua is supposed to be. But if you take a good look at him, you can see that his eyes are all clouded over. He can't see where he's going. And if you get close behind him whenever he's walking through an area that he's uneasy, because there's a lot of grandchildren traffic through there sometimes at high speed, and he gets, I think he's been run over a couple times inadvertently. He, there's certain areas where he creeps real slow. And if, if you're in a hurry, which we often are, and you walk up behind him, once he senses that you're close, or if you take your toe and you just kind of tap him on the tail, he jets off like a cartoon character spinning out, not going anywhere. And, it, and, he just, and he'll take off. And sometimes it catches him off guard and he tries so hard to get going that he falls on his side. Or if he's coming the wrong way, he runs into the wall. And so... He doesn't know. But if you were to come and look at him, you would think, hey, he's a pretty healthy little dog. No, he's old and decrepit, just like his owners. <laughs> I'm in trouble over here. I can be old and decrepit, but she's not. The, the, the thing is, is that 
You look, but if you look close, you see some things that you don't see at first glance. This is what we do. We're hasty in our worship of God. We're hasty in our service to God. Oh God, I'm going to give you the sacrifice. But we didn't take the 14 days of inspection to make sure that it was pure. To make sure that it was spotless. To make sure that it was undefiled. You go back to Exodus chapter 12, they were to wait 14 days. If you look at their practice, when they chose their atonement animal every year, the, the head of the household went out into the field and spent two weeks out in the field to make sure that he got the best that they had to bring home, to live with them as a pet, to be offered, to be named, to be loved, to be uh, part of the family so that it could be offered as a sacrifice for their sins the next year. I wonder this morning how many of us just think that we're bringing God a pure and holy and acceptable sacrifice. But if we'd stop and listen to the Holy Spirit, he'd say, you know what? You're trying. But there's some defilement. Pastor, what's my defilement? That's between you and the Lord. That's not for me to say. Because what we really want when we ask that question is, give me a list of sins that I can just stop doing. We want a checklist. We're wired that way. We're trained that way. But if you really look at the context here, the problem is not the checklist. They're checking all the boxes. The problem is the spirit and the attitude with which they go about their business. What's your spirit like this morning? What's my attitude like this morning? Do I value what God has given can I this morning rejoice in the bread of life? Do I have joy? Can I this morning offer my best in sacrifice? Or do I want to cling to it? Is it hard for me to part with? Or is it a joy to offer it? What am I supposed to give, Pastor? Your body a living sacrifice. And am I able to enthusiastically serve the Lord? Do you serve him enthusiastically? Are you excited about serving the Lord? Do you come in and say, oh, we're going to sing that old hymn again? Or do you sing it with vigor? Do you take in the message of the song? Do you absorb the doctrine that's being taught in song? Do you, do you hear the message? Do you see the envision the God that you're proclaiming? Or are we just going through the motions of worship? Do the, do the, does the, the, the truth of God's word jump off the page and arrest my spirit? Or am I nodding off as I read along? Come on. When it's time to serve, and I realize this morning, not everyone has the capacity to serve in the same way. That's the way God designed the church, by the way. If everybody could do the same thing, we'd be like a guy out in a rowboat paddling and rowing on the same side. We'd just be going in circles. We all have a role to play. Are you playing your, fulfilling your role? Oh, Pastor, I can't do this. My health's not good enough. Can you pray? Can you make a phone call? Can you send a letter? Can you speak a kind word? Can you be an encourager? There's not anything, there's not anyone here that can't do something enthusiastically for the glory of God. Pastor, I'm sick. You think God doesn't know that you're sick? Pastor, I've been hurt. You think God doesn't understand what it's like to be hurt? 
Pastor, I've been betrayed. Really? Do you, do you remember Judas? He knows. He's been touched with a feeling of our infirmities and he understands. And he says, let me be your father. Let me be your master. Take the very best that heaven has to offer and value it and appreciate it. And then in turn, to demonstrate the level to which you value it, give it back. Your best for his best. And his name will be exalted. Anything less, and his name is despised.